kind of interesting. Anyway, let's go to Kevin. Kevin, go ahead. Okay, th fantastic. Uh, slight detour, if I could. Uh, thank you, everybody, for the space, of course. And language or anyone else that may be able to lend some knowledge, uh, Portland. Uh, what, like, what, what could you? What would be your interpretation of what exactly happened for that? replacing of the flag on snake island i i understand there was some submersibles and um some engineers and it was quite quite an operation and and, and i was curious at any any um information that you could lend on that thank you i haven't heard anything about submersibles i was under the impression that about a day after the russians left a ukraine helicopter just dropped a flag on the island uh, because they didn't have troops there whether it was the next day, a couple days thereafter, quite literally a boat of Ukrainian soldiers landed on the island, took some pictures, took some video, uh, planted the flag, took some pictures. This is where things get murky. The Ukrainians claim they, or the Russians claim they hit the boat, the missile. The Ukrainians claim no such event happened. There's no firm's data to support it, but um, we might not see firm's data for an event like that. And beyond that, I don't know anything. But I hadn't heard anything about like a submersible. I think Ukraine, I mean, it's not that far from the coast. You could load some guys up into a boat and shoot towards it. And uh, if you've ever played Battleship, you'll realize it's usually quite hard to hit something with a missile from a long distance away if you're firing at grid coordinates. You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So hey, that's probably wink, wink. why they could just go there and drop it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so, no, there was – I did ask Chuck Fair about this the other day because there were some very interesting pictures that the Ukrainians chose to release – uh, regarding Snake Island, so you're 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 right. There there wasn't anything uh, after the flag for a little bit of time. There was a, there was sort of a, a silence or a pause, um, and then there were some some very very clear pictures and videos released of um, of a combined effort, and this included, uh, I believe they they referred to it as their 92nd or 93rd special um, special services division. Uh, these were their their combat divers, and uh, the photos showed. Um, uh, I don't. I don't know whether the photo calls it a swim uh, propellant device or a, a submersible dive diver propellant device. Right? There's some divide on, on what they actually were, um, whether or not uh, they, they classify as either of those. But suffice to say, they were they were mobility devices for for propelling divers underwater. Um, and so, in the report, in the write up from it, it, it looks like a combined event. And I asked Chuck, you know, wh why are we seeing this? Because um, if the Ukrainians didn't want us to see this, we would never see these pictures, both from that remote island uh, or from units of this caliber. Uh, and so, what it looks like in hindsight, pieced together, was uh, they used the combat swimmers to um, to uh, to to check that the route for the boat was both demined and that the pier was safe, that the pier was not rigged with anything. Uh, and then when that was clear, then the uh, the, the rigid inflatable hull boat uh, came up with some combat engineers. Uh, and those combat engineers then went uh, from the pier and they, again, did did sort of a, a combat demining clearing uh, to the, to the uh, actual, uh, I don't want to say summit, but towards the, the, the middle of the site there where the flag was. And there was a third unit involved. I can't remember it off the top of my head there. Um, I, and I think the third unit might have been involved with exploiting uh, either equipment that remained in place or exploiting intelligence that was still left on the island. Uh, and then it looks like they collected back up at the pier, took a photo uh, of all of that together, the, the combined of that with, with the dive devices and the, and the rigid inflatable hull. And some of the engineers, some of the divers, and that uh, that that third group. But uh, I think it was maybe a, a naval 
uh, infantry type group. I could be wrong here. Um, and it was interesting because they asked Chuck, you know, you know, they're clearly showcasing this this combined effort here. Um, what's the timing of this? They clearly didn't need to do that, uh, but but they did it because they could, uh, and they clearly you know showed us that they could. So I, I don't know what that that bodes for the future, uh, but suffice to say that those guys were getting you know some some real time combat type training, uh, and they're working as a cohesive team with other units. So I, whether or not that's used for other coastal areas or, or a taste of things to come, um, clearly they, you know, they intended for us to see that operation. And Gurney, do you think, I mean, you, you pointed to this a little bit, but in terms of why they went and put, put humans on the island, because we've talked about this, it's better if they just sink the whole darn island in terms of their strategic position. Do you think, it sounds like they went there for two reasons. One, to raise the flag is like a symbolic thing for Ukraine, uh, which is understandable. It's a, been, become an important symbol, Snake Island, uh, Russian warship, you know, and all that. Uh, but then also, you, you mentioned maybe taking a tally of the equipment there, maybe taking a look at what's there. Do you think in terms of, how how useful do you think that is in terms of compared to like satellite data or something like that? How useful would it be to get guys on the island? Go ahead. Um, well, two, there's two questions. Maybe let me let me answer this twice. I when I asked Chuck, you know, why why they did that, his his answer was very succinct, and and I think I think this was his answer. He said because they could, um, and so whether that was the risk analysis uh, versus their capabilities, you know, it it didn't take into account anything about did they need to do it right. His answer was just succinct because they could. So they assessed that they could do this, so they were going to do it. Um, as for you know exploiting. Um, the, the vehicles and intel on the island, I, you know, nothing's going to beat um, actually getting there because we did see at one point or another the Russians uh, claimed that they were bombing the island um, and, and or assets in place. It looked pretty wild because it looked like they were not smart munitions, so they, they landed a little wildly and one of them landed off into the water. Um, so that being said, um, you know, if we, we don't know the circumstances of, of the um, – evacuation of the island we don't know the specific circumstances we know the generalities that, that they clearly um you know under some sort of retreat or or something hostile fire we, we can't say it was orderly we can't really say it wasn't orderly but we could probably assume it, it was not an orderly uh retreat just judging by the um, you know some things appear to have been left in place to cause them to um, to cause the russians to to bomb their, their assets that they couldn't get rid of. Um, so that would imply that there wasn't enough time to properly, uh, you know, fix in place these assets, basically take, take your own explosives um, and, and blow up what you can so that the enemy doesn't get their hands on your electronics. They don't get their hands on your comsec. Uh, anything that you could imagine that's exploitable in the realm of electronic warfare um, or even any other documents that would have been on the island. Um, but in terms of those vehicles, you know, Portland's been up here talking a lot. You know, if there was panciers and, and a rancier on the island, um, this integrated air defense network, um, all of that you can't beat um, getting an actual eyes on the ground to sort of um, assess what what bits of equipment and they would would have probably been told i mean these are these are organizations that would know how how and what to exploit with uh you know they they're, they're not planning on taking the vehicle off the island uh so they, so they might have had a better idea but you you're not going to be able to do that from from the sky uh you know you can take reconnaissance pictures satellite pictures but that's that might tell you what's there um, but that won't tell you exploitable or not, you know, what condition it is and, and if you need to physically get to the assets to try to, uh, you know, to try to exploit them. So there was probably something there, um, although that seems like a byproduct of, of whatever the mission was, um, you know, the, the, the mission being um, at least portrayed to us much more as, a, you know, an info op and a because they could type thing, if that uh, 
sort of makes sense. If anyone wanted to add into that. Language, so, any follow-up there? Go ahead. As far as the pan-CNS one, which is, it's a, I think it's uh, Ukraine's, like, or rather Russia's most modern, like, surface-air missile system that's not, you know, the S-400 long-range. Uh, Ukraine actually already has their hands on one and has apparently been using it. They said today they shot down something somewhere, but we can't tell you about it. But we did it using a pan-seer that we have. So I would hope if they're using it at the front line, it means they've already gotten most information out of it that they can. I don't know if they fielded them on their own before this or not. But um, you know, as far as just some of the uh, integrated air defenses that Russia has, um, I would be astonished if Ukraine and concerned uh, Western nations have not been looking into it in detail and, uh, you know, feeding information on how to best uh, beat them. Thank you, Language. And so maybe we'll put out another call. If anyone does have any questions for Language about his uh, military update that he shared with us, uh, or you want to talk about uh, any any military subjects, if not, we're probably going to have a topic change pretty soon here to uh, what we're going to start calling High Mars O'Clock, which is uh, talking about various uh, ammunition depots and command posts that have been destroyed by uh, by High Mars and, and Tochka. Tochka is also involved. We don't want to, uh, you know, uh, ignore the Tochka. It's been a, a real power power horse uh, in this. Uh, is that a word? Power workhorse, whatever, uh, in this whole Powerhouse. scenario. Powerhouse. Thank you, John. <laughs> Powerhorse. Um, so, but yeah, so I think we're, we're, we might have a topic change, but if anyone does have any final questions for uh, language in his update, uh, we, we would be happy to, or he would be happy to answer them for you. Uh, so please uh, feel free to come up. Uh, otherwise, I think uh, we might start uh, working our way towards high Mars o'clock. Uh, back to you, Gurney. One, well, one thing, I... one thing about Pantsiers. Are five Pantsiers captured by Ukraine? This said Air Force yesterday. Five Pantsiers. Thank you, Daniel. Five pantsiers. Everyone heard. Uh, Bloke, uh, you saw you come up. Go ahead. Uh, just a quick question about um, the um, uh, denial of uh, the Black Sea to the Russians and how this will help Ukrainian aviation. Um, I'm fixated on that. <laughs> so you mean in terms of uh, Snake Island, like how will this help? Yeah, denying, uh, well, with the Moscow sunk and their, um, um, you know, ships going out, um, staying away from the Ukrainian coast, how this will help the offensive on Kherson because uh, it will free up Ukrainian aviation to uh, make a strike. I see what you're saying, yeah, because they don't have to worry about Snake Island anymore. They've got that aviation free for this uh, Kherson operation, right? Bingo. Yeah, that's it. Got it, got it. Okay. Well, thank language, you. Okay. One... Go ahead, Gurney. Yeah, no, sorry, sorry Joseph. Uh, language, I've got one question here. There was a, the seeking clarification on um, the uh, casualty or KIA number that you mentioned. They were just curious what period you think that covered. Uh, and just for reference, I think they mentioned it might have been a seven seven k number, if that rings a bell with you. Right. So the Ukrainian government today said that 7,200 uniformed personnel are missing in action, with a number of those presumed not to be dead and gone, but to be POWs. And there also may be perhaps some people who have, you know, abandoned their post or, you know, deserted or whatever. Uh, 2,000 of those are Ukrainian mainline army. Another 5,200 of those is pretty much everybody else from the National Guard to territorial defense forces to the intelligence services to police, etc., um, that's, I believe, up until now. I don't think it, I think it's just since the war began, really, or since the invasion began, I should say. 
Uh, it's not like this happened over the past couple of days. This has happened over the past, well, you know, the entire duration, really. So, you know, if you're looking over almost 140 days of this, there's another, you know, 7,200 who are missing. Um, I know we don't generally talk about Ukrainian casualties here, but that number seems pretty in line with, uh, you know, the losses that they've taken. Like you would expect to see, not everybody's going to be dead. Not everybody's going to be wounded. Some people are going to kind of shuffle off and die and not be found. Other people will be captured. Some people will have a change of heart once they're there and say, hey, I don't want to die, and they'll leave. And, you know, especially with the larger POW numbers that we've seen Russia be able to take, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a number of these are prisoners of war in one of the camps uh, somewhere in Donetsk or Luhansk. Any follow-up there, Gurney? No, thanks, Language. I think that probably answered their question. I, I can't speak for them, but I think you covered the time period pretty pretty good there. Um, so I've got sort of a, Joseph, I've got sort of a question to put to Portland to ask him which way uh, maybe we should go with these two questions. Portland, would you like to talk about a significant emotional event for three potential flag officers, or would you like to talk about uh, supernovas, uh, and that being Nova Kokovka? I mean, I'm having a pretty good day, regardless of which one we do first. So, um, uh, dealer's choice. Yeah, I was just going to say dealer's choice, but that uh, that would probably be you to pick here. Uh, you you pitched the question. That means that it's your choice. Okay, I couldn't wiggle out of that one. All right, let's go with uh, let's go with uh, uh, one of my favorite um, idioms here: a significant emotion, emotional event in uh, Hersan. So, just to catch everybody up to speed, set the table here. Uh, welcome, Doctor Francis. We got a couple hands up. Uh, they're probably looking forward to this discussion. Hersan uh, area. Okay. So it was uh, mentioned that a command post was targeted successfully uh, in the Kherson area, and I believe specifically uh, this was at the the somewhere near the Chernobyevka uh, airfield facilities that the Russians keep reinforcing. Um, don't take that for certain. I, I, I'm 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 a little fuzzy on reports, uh, but in that. Um, it was reported in that strike there was uh, there was quite a few fatalities, um, and in that command post that was hit was uh, three of the the, the top ranking people that were killed in that command post. So these are just uh, reported as killed. So I can imagine there's many more that are that are wounded or at least taken out of action uh, that are in command positions. Uh, that one of them was uh, the the chief of staff for the um, for one of the uh, combined arms armies uh, in that area. The other one was the colonel commanding of uh, the 22nd Motor Rifle Division, so a divisional size unit, uh, their commander. And then the third one that was mentioned, there was like three or four, but the third one that was of significance was uh, an artillery commander uh, of that motor rifle division. So the division's artillery assets, their major artillery assets. Uh, liberal hot mic there, could you excuse yourself? Um, so it was... Uh, Room, so those were the three. I think there was a fourth one in there. There was someone else uh, added to it. But yeah, so the table set there. So uh, Portland, John, uh, take it away. And I know we have a question here. I think from from Dr. Francis as well. Uh, John, do you wanna do you wanna start? Sure, I can run through the the list of names of the officers. Let me just pull that up. It's buried somewhere in um, uh, here. Um, give me one moment. I'm having to scroll through about a billion messages to try and find this. Okay, so um, you, you, I, I'll cover a couple of very basic uh, pieces of this. Um, so the the divisional unit was the 20th Guards Motor Rifle Division, which is considered pretty much the elite 
uh, of the uh, uh, the Russian army. The the twenty second that you mentioned there was the twenty second Army Corps, uh, which was actually uh, formed in twenty sixteen um, for the specific purposes of um, holding and defending uh, Crimea. So it's a uh, it's a pretty significant outfit. Um, it's kind of remarkable that they caught this guy that this close to the front because the uh the 22nd army corps has its headquarters in Simferopol you wouldn't expect them to be that far forward uh as it stands right now the entire Herson front appears to um it appears to be being run by the chief of staff for the 22nd army corps uh who is a colonel so that is that is a guy who should be commanding a brigade is commanding a full front of multiple divisions it's it's really uh it's it's pretty remarkable um now portland we did there was some there was some um i got a few dms earlier today that we were sort of debating that that title of colonel to try to look up you know is this was this a battlefield promotion uh you know shuffling around what was a colonel sent in because so if it was a western unit commanding that that motor rifle division would would by all means be a a general officer you know of the of the rank of, of general um some form of general um but uh it looked as if there was information to support that colonel depending on the size of the division that colonel was a regular title within the soviet structure i could be wrong on this but this was a discussed a little bit back and forth so there was a little bit of discourse on it um just saying that that no in in some uh, motor rifle divisions, especially depending on the size of it, um, that they are regularly commanded by a colonel. So I didn't know if that changed your assessment at all. You know, my my first thought of hearing a colonel commanding was like, yeah, that that sounds like a battlefield promotion, aka, uh, you know, somebody was was killed prior to that, uh, and they're really struggling to shuffle officers around. They put a lower ranking. Uh, officer in charge of that but i don't know uh you know if that's definitive but it just seemed that there was information that did support that some motor rifle divisions are uh commanded in other times by a, by a colonel so i don't know what what to make of that so colonel is both a rank and a position in the uh in the ukrainian sorry in the russian uh military hierarchy uh the chap that we are talking about right now uh, holds the rank of colonel, not the position of colonel. And yes, it is that. That yes, that is confusing. It's confusing to everyone, not just to you. Um, as sorry, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, John. I think John uh, might have sent me a DM on that. He he had some of the names. He'll, if he can just give you the names there, there, Portland, and then um, I'll let you continue on with with the discussion. Uh, go for it, John. Calling Mister Ridge. Okay. All right. John's having an issue there. Sorry, Portland. Um, okay. Let's go back to, to where we, where I uh, had so rudely interrupted there with, with Colonel. Okay. So the, my understanding is that the, uh, the, so we're, we're talking about two different people. Uh, there is the commander of the 20th, motor rifle division so we've we've got two units that sound similar and two guys um with similar well identical sounding ranks 
So there is the 20th Guards Motor Rifle Division and the Chief of Staff of the 22nd Army Corps. Okay. The guy that is currently running the show right now uh, is a is a colonel in the staff of the commander of the 22nd Army Corps. The one of the people that was killed was a guy holding the rank of colonel, sorry, the position of colonel, who was commanding the 20th Guards Motor Rifle Division. That confused everybody, and I did not make that better. <laughs> no, and John's coming back up here. Um, so, John, I know the one. So, uh, for for the actual army, for the for the echelon above um, above the motor rifle division itself, uh, there was a, a major general. Uh, but again, Portland's got the the rank and position separated out for us. So, not to not to muddy it here, but I'll leave that between John and Portland here to sort of uh, straighten out for us for the, the the position details. Sure. So, Portland, if if you like, I can run through the list of names as originally given by a Ukrainian journal as by the Ukrainian journalist who originally reported it. Oh, uh, yeah, that'd be great. So, the the people that are claimed to be KIA are. The Chief of Staff for the 22nd Army Corps, uh, Major General Nasbulin, um, the Commanding Officer of the 20th Motor Rifle Division, uh, Colonel Gorobets, uh, the Chief of Staff of the 20th MRD, Colonel Kins, uh, the Head of the Operational Department of the 20th MRD, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Koval, and um, finally, the Chief of Artillery of the 20th MRD, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Gordib. All are claimed to be KIA. And just as a little bit of clarification, um, a little bit more confusion, actually, um, technically speaking, the rank of colonel doesn't actually exist. That's just a translation. The actual word in Russian is uh, 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 polkovnik, but that's translated as colonel. Okay, well, the the plot thickens, but um, on that list, I'm going to go back to Portland here, but on that list... um, Clearly, in terms of um, the motor rifle division, I'll, I'll pause for a second at that, you know, just to delineate for the audience here. There's an echelon above that motor rifle division, um, and that is the, John, what was it, the 22nd uh, Guards Army? Is that what that unit was? The 22nd Army Corps. Yeah, so the 22nd Army, 22nd Army Corps is the, the higher echelon unit that controls um, multiple units with one of those being the, the mo- motor rifle division. Um, and Portland was mentioning that they usually work out of some fair pole and tasked with defending Crimea. So, um, so Portland, I'll push it back to you there um, with that, but it sounds like, I mean, it, that's still devastating for a chief of staff of, of that army unit to, to not only be gone, but clearly uh, most of the top of the actual motor rifle division itself um, is entirely gone. I mean, I don't know how many other chiefs of staff you're really going to have there that could sort of uh, walk in operationally w- with an understanding of what was happening. I mean, any transition is going to have to come from what sounds like somebody that's outside of that that body of knowledge uh, and from a different unit completely. Because I'd also imagine that that the wound in that tent comprised some some other upper level people that that we haven't named yet from the motor rifle division as well. So if you if you look at the uh, the photos that we've we've managed to pull, uh, some smart and helpful people actually geolocated this for us. Um, it's a large white building um, in in Herson proper. Uh, that is now now okay, so let's let's talk about the strike momentarily. 
The interesting thing from the photos that we've got here is that the blast happened inside the building. That's that's the interesting thing. They didn't drop explosives and detonate it like near overhead. They actually put, I'm guessing, three HIMARS through the roof and detonated them on the second floor. Um, all of the blast and ejector uh, and debris is oriented at nearly 90 degrees from a from the remains of a blown out window. So, and when when you say this building, Portland, this this white building here, could you give a sense of of size and scale for the audience? Because when I first looked at the photo, I was thinking, yeah, you know, it might be a, a smaller command post, but I was sort of uh, impressed with the actual size of the of the building shown in the in the you know the pre pictures where it wasn't destroyed, but it looks it looks relatively large. Do you have? Can you give sort of a just a general size and scale that it's it's not a small building? So I would say, looking at this, um, it's a building a minimum of around 120 feet long, uh, two stories, full height, really beautifully uh, uh, sculpted stone lintel windows. Um, you know, you're, you're looking at um, if you if you start from a uh, an image in your head of a, um, a pretty standard European palace. That's what you're talking about here. I mean, it's it's a very very big building. Um, so so a not insignificant tin shack sort of. Thing. Oh, it's it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's a stone shack, but yeah, let's let's go with a not insignificant big stone shack. Um, now, there's a couple of interesting details here. Uh, Judging from the central one, two, three, four, five of those, so that's forty. Yeah, I'd say about one hundred twenty feet long, probably on the order of twenty-five feet wide. So you know, it's it's a big building. It's across two floors. Uh, I understand that it has a uh, uh, a full height basement. So there's room in here for several hundred people to work pretty comfortably. Thanks. And, and the reason I'm asking that, because it, it seems like the discussion is going to go towards the, the munition here. Um, and I'd like to set that up just sort of, a, you know, if the building is a not insignificant tin shack, it's a it's a pretty big building and it's, and it's masonry construction or stone construction of some sort, pretty significant. It seems like it would take a lot of boom to make that fall down. And I think you're going to walk us in that direction of, of what makes that boom happen. Well, so the interesting thing is, is that uh, it, it didn't, but uh, it didn't fall down. The roof is caved in. There is a large amount of rubble in the in the arena. And now the photos that I have only show me a relatively small portion of the after. Um, but I am certain it's the same building. And I'm I'm looking at this. I would say we've got in the in i'm looking at maybe a third of this building and my guess is that 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 this was hit by certainly not less than two and not more than four munitions that were coming down more or less straight from above punched a hole in the in the roof which was a um 
uh, a wood frame with, uh, it looks like some sort of tile, some sort of fairly thick, robust ceramic tile. So that's punched right through the top and it's detonated inside the building. Well, I say it, they. Uh, what we're looking at here is somewhere between six and 12 high marks. So they really, really wanted to fuck this building up. They wanted to kill everybody inside. And it looks like they might have gotten their wish. Because if you think about it, the five people that were killed are the five most senior officers in a motor rifle division. You would not ordinarily have these five people in the same room at the same time if you could possibly avoid it. Yeah, and I'm going to pa- I'm pause there for one second because maybe this is um, might might be known to you and I, but for, for the audience's sake here, um, why might you not co-locate those people together in a similar room for for a situation exactly like this? Like where where might they normally be located, even if they're in the top of the command structure? Um, where would they be located? Like, how would you normally do that to not co-locate them again? So generally speaking, you would have a situation where these people only, um, you know, only coexist in the same space uh, as, as little as possible, because if all five of these guys are dead, then it is not immediately obvious who the successor in the chain of command is. And therefore, you will have a period of total paralysis in the division. Nobody in the division will know who is in charge. So you will, generally speaking, have a a commander, a staff, and the staff will, will have specific jobs. One of these guys was the commander of their artillery brigade, right? That guy has his own stuff. So for the most part, when he needs to go tell his boss something, he will send an under. So go ahead. Yeah, no, no, thank you. So basically that, that old adage here, you know, you don't want them to all fly in the same airliner together. It just doesn't make sense. It just introduces a, a little bit too much risk uh, that they could disperse out, that they don't, they don't need. They could, they could radio, they could teleconference if they had, you know, theoretical facilities for this, right? Um, but, but... But uh, should those facilities not exist or, or there's some sort of necessity uh, for them to, to meet together, whether they, they can't communicate or there's, you know, uh, someone's coming from some Faripol, that's an interesting aspect to understand why the chief of staff, uh, maybe he was making a, you know, a motivational morale visit. But again, to add the chief of staff, not, not just the top of those, uh, not just the top of the command for the motor rifle division, right? You're adding in also deputy chief of staff for uh the army echelon above that all into a single room together so yeah so keep so let me let me frame it there and, and ask you about um perhaps the paralysis and, and i don't have a scope of how many um divisions are operating in the Kherson area or, or Kherson to nova kakovka um it, it clearly has to be more than one um but do you have an idea and understanding of how many divisions may be between that that line there so uh, the 22nd Army Corps has its own um, one, two, three, four, five, six brigades. So that's two divisions. The 20th Motor Rifle Division is is another three brigades uh, of its own. Probably more than that. I think it's three brigades with a couple of attached regiments. So roughly speaking here, you're talking about three, three and a half divisions. 
Okay, so we've got so we've got three three and a half divisions potentially operating between that line there. They've got two bridges to their back, um, that being across the Dnieper River, one at Novogakovka, which has uh, which is a dam and a hydroelectric power plant, as well as a uh, uh, reservoir uh, device that that helps uh, keep the water height above a certain level so that water can be diverted into the Crimean Canal. Uh, but let me just add so so their egress has two bridges. Uh, well, there's well, there might be more than than two in in Harrison. But if I'm just grouping it generally, saying there's there's a bridge in Novokokovka and there's an access uh, in Kherson. So let me just ask you this: with that known, and with three and a half divisions uh, spread out um, and a bunch of brigades underneath this, but no divisional commander for one of them and no chief of staff for the army above that, what what do we think tonight looks like uh, for some of those brigades? Are they are they running around? Uh, you know, are they, are they talking to each other? Are they are they? Uh, operationally paralyzed what what might that look like um honestly that that requires getting into the psyche of russian senior officers who for the most part went into this feeling like they were um pretty much untouchable um and are coming out of this knowing that ukraine can and will kill them so you know i i I think that if it's me in one of those positions, I'm very nervous. I am very, very nervous because I know that there is nobody in the army group above me that that really has the full picture, that all of that institutional knowledge and all of that, um, you know, retained information gained over four months of war, it's all gone. Everybody that was in that room that was the entire head shed. They're all dead. And that rhymed and that was accidental, but I'm going to claim it. Um, you know, you, you're talking about people who are seeing, say, one third to one quarter of the big picture, knowing that the guy behind them that is supposed to know everything that is going on doesn't. Even if they got a guy, even if they didn't have that full paralysis, the guy that is going to have to come in to replace these people is not going to know what's going on. So if you think about what you would want to do in the run up to launching a generalized offensive uh, against a major enemy um, subunit, one of the last things on your list is, if you can, um, kill everybody uh, at the division level and above. And Ukraine just did it. Yeah. And let me add one more variable and maybe pause to take questions. Some of the listeners have their hands up on, on this section of, of Harrison to sort of cover some things that, that maybe I didn't ask there or, or Portland that you'd like to speak to. But complicating that, so complicating that potential, uh, you know, not knowing what's going on or not knowing... Uh, if there's people above you that can sort of handle the situation. So what do these lower units feel? Um, we can't get into their head, right? But we can also assume it does not help things if those lower units not only learn of, of that, but if simultaneous to that, they learn of, uh, and, and there was an ammo depot in Kherson reportedly hit too. But if you also learned that um, major ammo depots um, were being hit, um, and those were staged on your side of the river, on, on your side of the Dnipro, um, you might start to worry. You might start to worry tonight that things 
aren't going in your favor. Um, and not only might you not be effective, but you know, there, there might be an information run on the bank, so to speak, in terms of um, some of the chaos that, that introduces. And, and I'm sure some of the Ukrainians are capitalizing on, on some smaller or key positions in some key lines where some Russian troops are just looking to their left and to the right. And they're saying, well, I just heard this, this is gone, you know, and, and they might not want to be the last company holding the line when they're not sure uh, that anybody else is holding it. Even if, even if they're holding, they're not sure that everyone else is holding their portion. Uh, and so that starts sort of an information run. Uh, could I pause there and ask Portland that question? And then we'll open up the other. I missed a large part of what you said there. You dropped out for the middle, like third of what you just asked. No, just talking about um, so knowing that your divisional structure was wiped out and you're a chief of staff for the army. But to add on to that, to know that two more ammo dumps on your side of the Dnipro River also just went boom. You might be questioning whether or not if you're a Russian soldier right now, whether or not um, your command and your unit has it together and is equipped to stay on that side of the river. Um, you might be asking yourself tonight, what, what sorts of ammunition do you have or, or don't have? Even if it doesn't, even if it's not in your company, right? You just, and so I, I just sort of ask, you know, that complicating factor of the ammo dumps seems like it could be um, precipitous. So you've got an additional complicating factor on top, which is which specific ammo dump? Because we'll get onto this in, in more detail in a little bit. But the ammo dump that was hit was the storage dump for um, for Russia's long-range air defenses for this area. So you're looking at that and you're saying, okay, so wait, I have no top cover. The people who know where my artillery uh, support is coming from are all dead. The people who know how to get uh, ammunition to me are all dead. Uh, the people who know where my left and right adjoining units and who is responsible for reinforcing me if I get pushed from the front, they're all dead. Um, my air defenses have one reload at most, if that. Um, and, you know, I, I have no idea if I'm even going to have food in three days. Because the thing is, is that yeah, the, the thing that burns and gets everybody's attention is the ammunition. That's fine. You think they have separate ammo dumps for their food? I don't think so. Okay, so let me just, uh, I've been asking some questions of Portland, so let me just pause. Uh, Dr. Francis and then Liberal. Hey, guys. Wow, we, we got some good fireworks tonight. That was a real treat. As soon as that clock uh, strikes high Mars, I think my pulse quickens a bit. Um, I can just imagine how satisfying it must be for uh, Ukrainians that are operating those systems after all of these hard years of fighting to have these magic systems now where they can basically press a button and a bunch of Russian commanders get immolated on the other end. But anyway, I have a just a short question um, and then I'll make way for liberals. So it, it seems like Russia is having a hell of a hard time with their air defense trying to interdict these HIMARS strikes. Was that something, is that unexpected or is there something intrinsic about the system that it makes it difficult to defend against? Um, I was expecting the Russians to do better than they have, but I knew that they would be having a hard time. I didn't think it would be this hard, but I knew that it would be difficult because if you think about the 
the complexities of compiling a comprehensive air picture where you've got, say, between six and 12 high-speed missile tracks coming in. They're coming in at a very steep angle. These things fall from, from really very high. Um, so their, their apparent speed relative to the ground is not that high um, for the highest part of their arc. So you, you really got some complications from an air defense point of view, not so much with shooting them down, but in seeing them before it is too late to shoot them down. Um, once again, we're getting into the, the problems of pulse Doppler radars actually being a little bit too good in some ways. Um, I figured initially, my, my estimate was that Ukraine would need to plan on having roughly a third across the board of all of their HIMARS launches. Uh, intercepted by Russian integrated air defenses. To this day, we haven't seen any evidence of a single successful interception. Now, Portland, I've got, I'll add my own complicating factor here. There was some open source mentioning. Um, I think it was a, a tongue-in-cheek piece or, or actually an official release that from the Ukrainians that said uh, they were repurposing uh, 40 or 50-year-old uh, perceived obsolete Soviet hardware and it makes a great complement for the HIMARS systems. Um, and the reason I say that, so it, it ended there, um, there, I don't think this is letting anything out of the bag because it clearly would be known. Uh, they wouldn't have mentioned that. But it seems like uh, going along with that, there's been reports that, that uh, attached onto it that seems to imply that uh, whatever the radars are dealing with for incoming, uh, that, the, that the sequencing the Ukrainians are using with grad rockets, with HIMARS, with Caesars, um, and or with Tochkas, that they found a combination or sequence of events that really seems to uh, increase their success rate. And that was mentioned directly in that, uh, in that sort of uh, piece that mentioned the Ukrainians repurposing, finding great use in the, um, in the grad, the, the smirch rockets. Um, what, what would you say to that? If there was some sort of, even if we don't have to mention the sequence or whatever, what would you say to that if that was uh, likely for increasing the success rate of the HIMARS and uh, and the recent Tosca strikes, which seem to be more successful as of late. Yeah, I think that that makes perfect sense to me. I knew that they were really complicating the Russian air defense picture with the combination of Tochka-U and, um, and HIMARS. Uh, you, you really have to... Uh, <laughs> You, you have to arrange your air defenses radically different for these two systems. Uh, Tochka is a very big missile that comes in on a relatively flat trajectory going really fast. Like it's something like a Mach 5.3 missile in the terminal phase. Um, where HIMARS is a slow-burning uh, rocket motor with an extremely high apogee that never actually gets to be going that fast until you're in sort of the last 10,000 meters of your terminal dive. Um, so the, the way you arrange your air defense assets and the uh, complicating factors... Okay, so the way you even configure your moving target indicator for one missile versus the other renders it useless for the opposing missile. 
so I mean that's that's a a very serious problem for the Russians to solve. Um, you know, Godspeed, and I'm glad it's their problem, not mine. Uh, I don't think that they're gonna come up with much, to be honest, because every counter that I can think of that would tend to mitigate the usefulness of HIMARS would render them more vulnerable to Tochka, and everything that they could do that would mitigate the usefulness of Tochka would make them more vulnerable to HIMARS. It's a bit of a difficult situation for them to be in. And that's, you know, again, that's that's only accounting perhaps, say, for the increase in efficiency, you know, targeting efficiency of maybe the lat from 80% to, to something closer to, you know, 99%, et cetera. So, so even if they were to, to, to deal with that, um, they're still looking at something that is still going to hit, uh, would it be roughly 80% of the time with, with the, I'm, I forget what, uh, what was quoted out there in the, in the literature. I mean, basically from the, the evidence that I have in front of me, I haven't seen any evidence of a single failed HIMARS strike. Thanks, Portland. Okay, um, we're pulling Dr. Paul up. Uh, Liberal, I know you've been waiting. Uh, I, go ahead, Liberal, and then we'll go to uh, John and then Dr. Paul. Thanks, Gurney. Um, I have a question for the poet, um, Portland. Um, people always see the violent side of explosions and associate you with that, but you do have a sensitive side and uh, you also are uh, capable of poetry. So I have a question for you, sir. Um, Herson, do you see with the advent of the HIMARS, the reshaping of the battlefield by the Ukrainian forces and Given that, do you have, um, if you can put on your conjecture tinfoil hat, do you have an opinion of when we may see a counteroffensive in her song? I honestly, at this stage, I expect it inside the next. Inside the next what, Portland? The, the, it, if you figured out that you've got an enemy that is willing to play this dumb that they would put these five people in the same room and at the same time in artillery striking range from you 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 don't want to kill those people until you're ready to move so sorry you said inside of a week or inside of a day or what oh under two weeks got it thank you sorry i thought you cut out when you because you said I would expect it inside of, and then, like, we didn't hear what you said. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure we got it. Thank you. Uh, uh, Gurney, back yeah. to you. Well, no, I was just going to add, maybe highlight this, Portland, or ask you to expand upon that that statement. So when you say you, you'd like this to happen closer to when you move, um, is, is and, and even if I, I think I know this, but is that because you don't want them to reestablish command and control and exercise and, and delegate authority. And basically in two weeks time or three weeks time or a month from now, um, the damage you caused today will eventually, uh, you may not get back to 100% of what you were before with the lost in institutional knowledge and, and what you knew, uh, but they will get back to um, a command structure that is that is uh, exercising uh, command and control versus, you know, night night zero of that attack. There's there's the the lowest amount of command and control you're going to have due to the strike itself. Is could you just uh, elaborate on that or or refute that? Yeah, that's that's exactly correct. But I can make this real simple for the listeners. Um, I'm going to ask you, Gurney. Have you ever been in a fist fight? Well, I I usually try to avoid them because that's the best way to do it. But I've 
still gotten in a few scuffles, unfortunately. Okay. okay. Do you want to fight a drunk person or an unconscious person? If you have oh, to pick, man. you're giving me the moral quandary here. I I know the answer. Are you going to get me to say the answer out loud? <laughs> Go on. Say say the answer out loud. <laughs> Well, uh, there's risk involved in both of those, right? But there's much less, even though the drunk guy is, take um, is less risky. Take the moral. Okay. Th- we're, yeah, we're the unconscious guy. You're going to attack you're gonna the, unconscious the unconscious guy because of the risk. Exactly. So even, a, even an incompetent commander still exercises um, much more command authority and is more capable of making more joined up decisions than no commander at all. If you've got 22,000 Russian soldiers and you can take those from being a single coherent unit under an inept commander and make them 22,000 individuals who have just become profoundly aware of their own mortality, that's the option that you want to go for. So, you know, if you if you are in a fight with someone, Think about your priorities. What are you going to do first? Well, step one, if you can, is blind them. Step two is um, cut them off from resources that they need to prosecute the fight, i.e. air. So you're going to choke them. Step three, if they are blind and they can't breathe, you're going to hit them in the head until they fall down. Okay. Well, now that you say that, it makes it much more clear because I thought you were assuming I, I walked up to the fight and the guy was unconscious. But but now I get it. I thought I thought there was a sort of nick from your unit might have uh, might have made a few unconscious people in his time and just uh, <laughs> and just set them up to a fight. Anyways, no, I, I'm, I'm jesting. I'm jesting. Taking taking the moral question out of this entirely, because war is a fundamentally a moral business. You know, if if I have the choice between fighting an incompetently led unit and a completely unled unit, I want to fight the unled unit. Yeah. That was a that was a nice way to say. Um, but I'm still remembering Nick, and I'm still going to watch out for pool cues and unconscious persons uh, from Nick because he's waiting for me in the barracks to just sort of whack my head over the corner. So I, I'm on to you, Portland, and I know Nick's watching. Okay, uh, let's go to uh, let's see, was it John and then Doctor Paul? I forgot the order. Uh, Doctor Paul, you can go ahead. I, I there there were two things I wanted to mention. I forgot what what one of them is. So Doctor Paul, please go ahead. All right, thanks, John. Um, Two questions, and I'm going to separate them. So I'm going to start with one, and then go to go to the next because they're not necessarily related. But uh, you know, Portland, you might have covered this already. But did you come up with a tonnage of ammunition that has been at the uh, Kakovka uh, hit tonight? Uh, would you surmise that it's a division level ammo depot or a brigade? Then I'll follow up with my second question after. So we're going to get into what we know and how we know it about that. Um, that particular hit uh, next, but uh, the the preview is um, you're you're looking at something roughly equivalent to uh, at least 150 tons of TNT. So this is basically an entire army group's worth of S400 missiles. That's awesome. Thanks. Okay, and then the other question is, I seem to remember, you know, in the run up to before HIMARS you know, actually got into Ukraine that that they were an expensive asset, an expensive uh, resource for the Ukrainians to use. Is that accurate? Is my, is my memory correct in thinking that? Cause if, if not, then I have something to say after that, but 
is that what the general consensus was that these are expensive and not really cost effective on a wide scale? Oh, that's that's not true. Um, as as far as precision guided weapons go, these are not particularly expensive. Something like a hundred and five to one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars a throw. The the real expense is um, is in the expertise and knowledge of the crew and the machinery of the launches themselves and the uh, the reloader transloaders. So you don't want to put them in a situation where you might lose them because they are difficult to replace and they are really vital. But in terms of like cost per shot, nah, no, they're, they're not really very expensive at all. I totally agree, Portland. And that, that's why I brought it up because like I actually finally got a, a good estimate on cost and you just basically read it verbatim for, uh, of what I was thinking. And given that, I mean, seriously, the amount of uh, we're going to see a lot more rockets coming because uh, just for, you know, 2000 rockets will cost about $200 million only. And, you know, that I, I definitely w- would anticipate that we're going to see high, high, high volume uh, rocket, uh, high Mars rocket strikes, even on potentially frontline troops, uh, you know, ma- major troop concentrations after they get through these like high value targets. What are your thoughts on that? To me, it's very cost effective. There's not a piece of kit in the Russian inventory that's, you know, at least of armored inventory or otherwise, that's less than $100,000. So, you know, on a cost effectiveness basis, uh, there's no reason why we wouldn't be seeing such uh, strikes in the future. Well, the, the fact is that we're already seeing them somewhat, not, not totally, not even to a large extent, but we are already seeing a deprioritization of these division level assets. So it's already happening. It's it's going down exactly the way you predicted it would. Awesome. Thanks, I Appreciate it. And just to add on there, Portland, uh, not only the cost per, per um, rocket, it seems very low for the system, for the precision gain, um, and then magnified by the amount, you know, the return on investment for not only the priority of the targeting, but the precision of the targeting, you know, and, and, the, and the order of targeting, um, they're, they're really reaping so much more than even the cost of the round, even if the cost of the round, you know, as you say, is, is phenomenally cheaper than other precision systems. I'm just going to take a step further and also go to, to the vehicle component. component. Um, the vehicle component is relatively simple. Now, I'm not going to pretend it's, um, it's cheap. Um, at, at whatever million a pop it is or two million a pop. But in terms of vehicles as they go, um, it's basically, um, you know, a very common Western type truck frame. Um, and most of the magic happens in the actual pods themselves. I don't know how they uh, containerize parts of the electronic components. Uh, but as far as things go for simplicity, you're also getting a lot of bang for your buck should an actual HIMARS chassis go down or need repair relative to, say, a $35 million airframe? I'm, I, I know they're not equals here, right? Their capabilities are not equals, but I'm just talking about in terms of the simplicity, if we're talking about uh, lower cost rockets and lower cost chassis, uh, they're just extracting some of the most maximum value you can out of something like that. And, and, and some of those reasons, you know, clearly, the, the, the U.S. and the Western have, have gone with air superiority. Um, so these things, uh, you know, might have sat as a back burner, uh, so to speak, in our arsenal 
right? Nobody's nobody's seeking a land war only uh, in Europe under these circumstances with you know with limited air engagements. Um, so it might have been an afterthought, uh, or is a small component of uh, of a Western 